This is no small part. No small part. No small part. This is no small parts. I am Brittany Brewer. How's your day been? You had like the endless day too. It was a big day. Yeah. So, you know, on a, in a world where days are often nothing, you know, any day that is a couple of things is a lot. But today was like a legit, I was like zooming for a solid day. You know what I mean? Like most of the noon on I've been zooming. So here we are. Boom, boom, boom. This is Seamus McCarty. But that's the way now, right? Yeah. Something. Just, just keep zooming. Endless video chats. Oh Yeah. It's so funny. I'm not funny. I don't know. It's interesting seeing everyone's like where they they are in their video chat like setup. It's like I'm in my official spot now. Right now I have my <laughs> red fabric that I use as my professional backdrop. It's been making a great actor's backdrop. Oh yeah, I mean it does. It's great because it's neutral and it's like bright, so it's not just like I don't know. I feel like at the end of the day, if you don't have like a solid color, everyone just looks kind of like a muted white gray behind them with like some stuff, you know. And you're like, oh, those are shelves you couldn't move clearly. And you're frustrated by that now because suddenly it matters that you have to frame, you know, half of your kitchen. <laughs> he is a creator, director, and performer. Did your uh, did your whiskey shipment come in? It did. It's almost done, though, Brittany. I was actually realizing <laughs> this is the last of it. So no! cheers to that. It is. So I was like, oh, right. Last time Brittany and I talked and the thing got deleted or whatever, um, we... I had just ordered this, yes. and now it's all gone. So when was that, Brittany? Do you know? Yeah, I think... Um, I want to hear 28 days, Brittany. It... it, it yeah. Mm. <laughs> I, I'm going back to double-check for sure. I don't think it was 28 days. I think it was like a week and a half ago. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely not a week and a half ago. On today's episode of No Small Parts, Seamus talks about the difference between readings and staged readings, his experience with a two-and-a-half-year musical play creation and producing process, and how things always fall apart, and that's okay. Cheers. Three oh, weeks. Really? Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's better than I thought. Well, then cheers. Now I don't have to feel bad cheers. about it. Cheers. <laughs> are you drinking straight right now, or are you drinking Yeah, no, that? it's just rye. It's just rye. <laughs> but, you know, after a day of zooming... Yeah. What else you yeah. do but, but sit in your basement, putting on your PlayStation headset and talking to people about putting on plays in the apocalypse <laughs> while you drink rye out of a water glass. Hey yo. Hashtag twenty twenty. Oh man. <sighs> but it's true, that's the life we have now. So that's fine. We are. Okay, Seamus. Okay, Brittany. Tell me, what was your gateway into a theater? Oh, sure. The gateway into theater. The great drug. Um, so I, so I've always been like a ham, you know, I've always loved attention. Uh, and I used to like do little performances in my like living room as a child, like so many of us do. Uh, and, um, yeah, from there I did like co-curricular type stuff, you know, in, in like little kid school. So like elementary school, I did like Odyssey the Mind was a program I was super into, which is like creative, uh, problem solving mixed with performance. Um, and that kind of stuff. And then in high school, I did a bit of stage management. And uh, then I told myself I was going to undergrad for law school. And then after like a minute and a half, I was like, no, I'm not. This is terrible. I'm a theater <laughs> major. But I made it a big like decision moment. You know, I like, really had to pretend. Um, <laughs> as, the, as the actor, we all are. So I did that. And then I did that for four years. And that was fun. 
And uh, then after college, I uh, was working as a like production manager and a little bit of lighting design. And then I was like very quickly out teched um, and my like lack of uh, technical knowledge was like very apparent. And so, um, and I'd always wanted to direct. And so I uh, started looking into directing a little bit more and found very quickly that assistant directing jobs were hard to come by and didn't pay very well. Uh, and so I started auditioning instead because it felt like another way of getting into rehearsal rooms and like learning from directors. Uh, but I always had the intention to return to directing. And then the thing about that is when you decide that, you still got to get jobs. And so <laughs> a lot of times that means you're producing the show. Uh, and so, yeah, so I'd done a bit of like producing type work before starting to like self-produce, you know, I had worked for some small companies, some like startups from like undergrad type things, like literally uh, various things in production and stage management and uh, and then I worked for like some some bigger and like mid-sized companies in town doing various things so I was like the managing director of the Bearded Ladies for a season I worked for like front of house and like uh, house management box office management for Flashpoint Theater Company um, so all of that stuff kind of taught me about making plays happen because you need them to happen and not because there's anyone there to support it happening <laughs> It's so interesting that your that your gateway was stage management. Oh yeah, when I was in Mannheim Township Performing Arts, our uh, the heads of our like that my high school program just retired this year. They were supposed to have like this big you know thing that was you know canceled uh, oh, <laughs> because because yep. well, everything was right. <laughs> I was like I started to tell the story, and I was like we don't have to tell that story anymore. You know, it's just like oh well, I had this thing in 2020. Oh of course, and then it didn't happen. Yes, go. On. You know what I mean? Like that will be the assumption of like the the rest of that sentence. You know. But anyway, so uh, so it was like a lovely program, and uh, we had like a, a lineage of stage managers. So I was SM5 in the lineage, the fifth one. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was a terrible stage manager. I still am. It's, it's a very hard job. I mean, it's useful that you know things about stage management and that you've oh, lived sure. in that role. <laughs> I'm sure stage managers hate it, though, because every <laughs> once in a while I'm like, oh, I have a thought. And they're like, uh-huh. You think I haven't thought about that doing this? I'm like, oh, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then one time I AD'd at a big regional theater last year, the year, I don't know, recently. Um, and it came up a couple of times that I just like hadn't been used to being uh, behind the table in rooms like that. Mm-hmm. And so somebody would be like, oh, line. And I'd like throw it out. And they'd be like, no, Seamus, that is not for you here. And I was like, oh, right. Because so, you know, so often it's like, oh, thank God, somebody threw out the line because the stage manager is, you know, moving the set piece and the ASM is helping move the set piece. Yes. And, you know, and you're like rehearsing a thing in a corner while that's happening. Um, <laughs> and so that's different in places like that and I'm normally as an actor you're, you know just to be quiet and be like out of the way when you're not being like summoned uh, but so that was a another time just to check in about how that old skill set was not for me today <laughs> I mean I feel like also and I know you'll you'll get into this but when you're producing at different levels you like have to wear 18 hats so like of course you'll be like oh wait here's the line because oh, I'm sh- also doing that because our stage manager is coming in the day before and I'm the stage manager until they're there. Yeah, no, totally. You definitely wear lots of hats and finding the balance is often tricky, particularly when you have to like uh, bridge the gap as like the artistic head and also like the the financial head for lack of a better word, right? Yes. So like 
you know, I uh, I try to usually create a system in place whenever I am wearing both of those hats. It's like, hey, if you have any questions about like contracts or logistics, you're going to copy the stage manager and email those. And anything artistic, we can talk about in person at the space, you know, but just like for the sake of whatever, um, of like the, them being feeling protected, myself feeling protected, and like we're able to keep those two things separate. Um, and because I think you should always have a paper trail on like, you know, contracty type things. So that's how I try to delineate those things, but they ultimately merge. You know what I mean? There's no rehearsal room where a financial question doesn't come up or, oh, hey, when are we getting that check? Or do we have enough money for this? Or I had this idea. Can we do it because of X, Y, Z? So it's it's an interesting thing. I usually try to hire someone that knows money and reality better than I do because I love to be like, yeah, we can do it. (laughs) We can totally (laughs) do that. Wait, that's interesting. Have you hired someone before to help, like, line produce or to help produce just budgetarily? Yeah, so I have worked with, like, individual people to just do, like, that back-end work. Um, I'm also very lucky to have a network of people that, like, want to support me. So when I'm like, hey, here's my budget, and I send it to someone that knows that world better than me, they're essentially doing that work without the credit. Um, So shout out to all of the many uncredited people in the arts and everywhere. Um, But, you know, I think it happens a lot in in theater. I notice it happening a lot in theater. Yeah. And so, you know, I think it's definitely a thing worth noting. Um, Yeah, so I've done that. And then I also just tend to, uh, the scale for things that I produce on tends to be such that everyone does wear a little bit of every hat or at least some extra hats and so i often try to like pair with stage managers that know a bit more about like producing and production management as you dive into producing it might be beneficial to reflect on the skills you feel most comfortable with and the skills you may like support with or to grow in consider finding collaborators who can help you with your grows also for more on stage managers and production managers listen to the no small parts episode with hunter robinson uh because i find that point of view very helpful and and essential towards you know uh, thinking about ideas and also because often those people are so well connected and understanding of designers um and so it's really useful to be like to talk through an idea that like sounds unfeasible or sounds really expensive with a stage manager so that when i bring it to a designer the week before tech it's in a uh it's not in like the vision sense you know it's not like and then we need flames to come out of the sky it's the you know eleanor i'm just gonna say eleanor because i'm working with eleanor safer right now amazing stage manager producer wonderful person but that's what i keep thinking of because we're working on some stuff right now where she's like oh cool but what we're gonna do is this right so having someone to help translate that a little bit in these small condensed things is very useful so she can say what Seamus wants is three red lights and they need to go here and here and like here you know <laughs> versus me being like and then the flame part happens you know and they go no it doesn't (laughs) but yeah i think you know it's essential to have uh i don't know kind and hard-working people around you which is like i i was a very pretentious young artist uh very you know what i mean i had a lot of strong opinions uh and i think that you know the reality that i had been told many times but still struggled to accept accept is that like kind works as often as talented does um if not more so uh and if you're both amazing yeah tell me about the first time you dabbled in producing oh the first time i dabbled in producing well Brittany, really really and truly sorry sherry harper mccombs if you're listening to this when I was a sophomore in college, Brittany, I wanted to direct Mr. Marmalade by Noah Hadel for my undergrad's like black box student series in the spring. And there were like three weekends 
And so they were going to do three plays and four people submitted and I didn't get mine. And I was livid. I was absolutely, and, and like retrospectively, yes, of course I see it, Sherry. Yes, of course I see it, Karen. <laughs> I was like definitely not focusing on school and just doing too many plays, but whatever. Here we are. I'm telling it. Um, so, you know, make space for everybody in your program, even the non-academic ones. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> I love my undergrad professors. Uh, great. But so they said, no, Seamus. You can't do your play. And I said, well, forget that. We're going to do it in the basement of my building. Because I had just moved into this, like, new building on our campus that was supposed to be, like, an arts. Uh, it was like a, what did they call it? Like a learning community or something. They had some term for it, right? So it was called Project 2527 because that was, like, the street number. Uh, and we were supposed to, like, do various social activism projects and, like, you know, social engagement. And no one did anything. So I was like, no, I'm doing the play anyway. And I got my scrappy friends um, who ultimately were the people that I first made work with in Philadelphia as well together and we put it up in the basement of our house the department was like letting us borrow stuff but like a little cagey about it and they were like oh you can do it but it can't conflict or like we'll help you as long as it doesn't conflict with anyone else's performances so we did like a Wednesday Sunday run um (laughs) but whatever we did it right and uh and everything went terribly wrong. Uh, all of it. It all went terribly wrong. Like, literally, for the photo call, uh, we blew a fuse. All of our, our lights were like two, like mini, like uh, like classroom setting lights to like teach you how like a, to focus a lighting instrument. You know, so it was like very, it was like very minimal. But it blew out the fuse. So all of our pictures, instead of being like gracefully like with like twinkle lights and stuff on them, are just like full lights up in a, a common space, essentially. Of us just wearing absurd costumes and going back and forth. Um, and the play was fine, I think. I don't know. It was probably terrible. But that was the first time I did it. And then after that, it's pretty much always been because somebody had an idea and we didn't have somebody to fund it. And we said, all right, well, we're going to do it anyway. Oh, my gosh. That's great. Okay. So you began to dabble in producing when you were in college. When did sure. you um, produce your first reading? When did I produce my first reading? Um, I would say the first reading that I like really produced was probably the reading of the musical I wrote. (laughs) Yes, yeah. You know, I I was definitely like part of other like in progress showings and like development works, but I wouldn't say that I was like the frontline producer for anything like that before that. At least not that I remember, which is not to say it didn't happen. Like, I don't know. I recently had a moment where, uh, I was looking at my resume uh, for an application and I was like, oh, I like literally don't remember some of these shows. And those are like the 20 that I chose to write down. You know what I mean? Which is not to say like, oh, my voluminous career, like clearly the highest paid gigs are on there. You know what I mean? Um, But it's funny once I, I don't think I ever thought I would get to a point where I wouldn't remember every show. And I'm positive now that I don't remember every show and I'm 100% positive I don't remember most readings. That like unless, like, unless they were like particularly terrible yeah. or like something very funny happened. Uh, but then eventually I wrote a musical with Hannah Park, uh, Close Your Legs Honey, check us out. And that we did a lot of work on for, we did a lot of readings for, for ourselves more than so than for the public. You know, I don't know that I always ever understand why people are doing readings. And that was a situation where because we were controlling what each reading was and the timing of it and the type of feedback that we like opened ourselves up to uh felt like a very useful like development process would you walk me through the different readings you all produced for close your legs honey yeah honey was like a two and a half year process so we'll see if i get these right in order 
Um, so first, we had an idea, and that was for us. Uh, uh, <laughs> so I mean, so like trigger trigger warning now, friends. I'm about to talk to like bodily functions, the ugly times, you know. Uh, I'm gonna talk about like weight issues a bunch. I'm gonna talk about like neglectful parenting a bunch. I'm gonna talk about growing up like white and poor a bunch because those were all parts of this. Um, so I just share all that now for anyone that's not <coughs> ready to hear about those things. Mm-hmm. So Closure Like Honey started with initial proposal between myself and my collaborator Hannah Park while we were driving for a touring classics gig um, that was like almost always an hour commute. And so I like I was in charge of this little caravan. I had my boyfriend's SUV thing and would pick up like five people. And most people sat in the back on their phones or like listening to music. Uh, but Hannah always had us in the front because she got car sick. And uh, so we would talk, which is great because we became dear friends and then eventually wrote this musical. Uh, and so we had the initial proposal that we were both just talking about like, ah, oh, you know, I feel like people don't talk about growing up like being poor and just like being, a, you know, and like what that looks like to then enter like society later and like suddenly have that like thrust upon you like, oh, you were actually poor. And you're like, oh, shit, um, because everything just feels so normal. So what we wanted to create was uh, like a normal world for a young person that was lower income. We want to look at how in those communities uh, body and growth is and is not discussed and the way it is discussed. Uh, and for that exploration, we chose the lens of a young woman versus, on the day she got her first period. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that initial proposal led to a showing with a group called Super Object uh, in a church basement in West Philadelphia. And we did like a... I don't know, like a 10 minute showing that was like mostly voiceover and movement with Hannah doing some like expressionistic modern stuff and like rolling around the pool full of barbecue sauce. And we like did like a live like period moment where she like punctured a bag that was stuck in her bathing suit because <laughs> we were really curious about like how gritty and like grotesque we could go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of like the start of that exploration. So we did that. And then from there, we're like, ah, cool. I think it's bigger than this. Uh, I think we want to see other people. And so we wrote the mom. And we said, her mom is definitely part of it. And this is how her mom is part of it. Uh, So we wrote, like, an initial, uh, like, a starter script, essentially, that focused on this little girl and her mom and her brother and... and like training for a pageant, essentially. I don't even think the pageant itself was in the initial draft. It was just about like the idea of like questing after something. And so we read that, we invited some people over with their laptops and we all read it in Hannah's kitchen. Um, And then from there, we decided the music was a part of it in some way. And we created a like 10 minute scene between the little girl and the physical embodiment of her anorexia. Uh, And we wrote a parody to uh, Dancing Queen by ABBA and we showed it at Fringe Arts. And we said, this is what we're doing. Uh, And it ended with, The mean girl, like the, you know, anorexia, her name was Anna, saying, and next week I'll show you how to stick a coat hanger down your throat. And then like a little like tag and then like blackout. And people were like, what the hell is this? And I was like, I don't know yet, friends. We're going to figure it out. Uh, so there was like some heat to that. There was heat to the music and we loved that. And we loved like sticking with a grotesque comedy and like, you know, pushing that boundary. And so from there, we took the initial script and that proposal and like mashed them together into a... Uh, a a play that showed simultaneously the pageant and preparing for the pageant. So basically it was like, we're at the pageant and then all the scenes were flashbacks in between we had talent demonstrations from all the girls. Uh, And that 
we showed in a private reading for the artistic director of a company that was interested in the piece when Hannah pitched it to him. Uh, and he ultimately passed, and that's fine. So from there, we learned a bunch, did a bunch of rewriting, streamlined it, did like one more or two more like kitchen, living room type readings, and then said, we gotta write songs now. And so we did. <laughs> so then we wrote, kind of, we wrote uh, Cheers essentially. So we like, came up with lyrics and we came up with like rhythms for things, but we didn't have like full songs. So we did a Philly Theater Week, totally free, one night only, uh, script in hand reading of the show, or like, I call them semi-stage readings, um, of the show. And uh, then we presented the like the Cheers. And that was in, I guess, February. And then, I don't know, then we wrote songs for seven months and then we made it a musical and showed it. Um, but essentially there was one more showing after that. We we're like, cool, we have to now go like figure out what this really is. And so we took that script, changed a shit ton, <laughs> added in 10 songs, I don't know, eight songs. And like, I would say one, one and a half to two of them were in that version. Uh, and then we wrote a bunch of songs and then we did a concert of it uh, I guess a month before we went into rehearsal. So the concert was the last time we showed the that script. We did one more round of edits and then landed on our production script for the initial production, which we have edited since and presented the show since with different material. Wow. <laughs> Seven-ish? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Just readings in and of itself. And it sounds like the audiences were very different for each of those. Yeah, yeah, so we did a lot in private. Uh, you know, so a lot of our like work was literally, and I just shared this for the sake of like anyone that's like doing this at home being like, is this what this looks like? And we were literally like uh, mapping the, sh we took, I mean, the matter of sheets of paper we wasted for this, right? But at one point we took all the material we had and we put everything on like distinct pieces of paper and mapped out the show and just kept remapping it and going, no, that's not, no, I don't think, you know? And so then that was where we like identified, uh, and this was in our like later stages. This was in between showing it with, uh, with chants and like making it a full musical. So that was like kind of our structure process was literally taking everything we had and we're like, this number happens here or like the scene between the host and honey or this, you know what I mean? The mean girl scene is going over here, right? And we would literally just piece them together in different ways. Uh, and then every time we had like a version that we liked, we just like tweaked anything small we had to and we read that. So in addition to all of these things that we did, <coughs> there were a number of artists that whether it was promo material or reading it at somebody's house had like been a part of the developing the piece. And so we had additional times that it was just like all of us like on like a Zoom call before it was cool, um, <laughs> reading the script together and just being like, here's a question I have, what's this part, this, you know? And that was really essential. I, re I distinctly remember uh, Jenna Kersey who worked with us from almost start to finish on the show as a performer um, and a collaborator at one point said to me, the last draft was better. And it was like a bit of a, like a sting, like, and it was like, you know, uh, but it was also very important because she was right. And there were things about the new draft that we kept, but ultimately the last, the draft before that had a better structure and we went back to that structure. And so that was like really essential to, to get to a point with someone who had been that close to the work that she could say, just frankly, like, no, that was the better version of it. Because when you're producing and writing, it's, I mean, there's no one, there's no one, no one can tell you no. You know what I mean? Like it, they really can't, you know, and like people can push back. And I, I like to think that in that process and since that process, I've grown in my own capacity to receive, you know, feedback and, and constructive feedback. Um, 
but really and truly, no one was suddenly going to be like, Seamus, the show was trash, you know, because I was giving them jobs and I was being nice to them. And like, you know, and everybody loves those things. That's so interesting. That's a challenge to producing that I don't think I had like thought about even in on the nose sense. Yeah. I mean, having people, uh, I, I think we're, there's this constant conversation and battle as far as are people just hiring the same people again and again, right? In our field, and it's it really the best person for the part or the best person for the project. And at a certain point, you know, the people making decisions in the room were also looking out for what's best for them in the room. And having not yes people, but, you know, people that are they're comfortable talking with or will not, like, create an energy that they don't know how to navigate is, is a real thing that, you know, people look for. And so if you are the producer and the director, meaning nobody fought you on who to hire, mm. you know? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Would you talk about um, one or two times you've had unexpected challenges when you've been involved in producing readings or stage readings? Oh, sure. I mean, shouldn't we expect all the challenges at this point? Like, it's all like, you know what I mean? Oh, God, it all falls apart every time. I think that's kind of the beauty of it. I really do. I don't know. I think readings are the funniest thing. Because, like, who are they for, right? When you, you always have to ask, what is a play for? What are we doing this for, right? And I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But, um... A reading, right, in theory, is for the playwright? Or is it to suss out if your audience will tolerate a script or what, right? And so I think identifying that is kind of crucial and key um, because I think so often, like, the, the hurdles of readings are, like, very technical, arbitrary things that don't matter, right? We're short a music stand. Okay. Everyone knows you're not any, you know what I mean? No one cares. The music stands mean nothing. Like, okay, that's, that's not, like, ideal, right? You know? Or it's like, oh, no. I don't usually, this is assuming that not even listening to this has ever worked in a stage reading, because why would you, unless you're like all of us and choosing to play pretend. Anyway, um, but so oftentimes people, uh, directors will number the the various music stands that people are going to stand at, right? So it's a real quick, easy top of scene. Seamus, you're two. You know, Brittany, you're five. And that's so we'll start here. And then on this line, Brittany, you're going to four, right? So we're getting closer. And like, that's the whole, because that's all you get to do. You don't have a lot of staging that you get to do. Um, and so those always fall apart. Every reading I've ever been in, if I've directed it, if I was in it, you always get to a scene and you go, why the hell is the protagonist like off by themselves over here and everyone else is over here, right? Or or whatever else it is. And it's because somebody jumped up and committed to a choice and actors will not show fault, right? They're taught to not show mistake. So they will commit to, I'm standing in my chair because I did. I'm here. I'm not going to undo it because then it's on me. It's my mistake. Otherwise, it's like a weird choice, and everyone goes, "Oh, it's a reading." They, you know, they had to do something, right? Um, so I feel like those are often the biggest hurdles of readings. I, I've certainly done readings that didn't allot enough time for the script, or like the director didn't time pace themselves well, which is another reason why you know stage managers are essential and a godsend. Um, because I've done stage readings where we got halfway through the play, and then it was like, "Okay, great, now we're on for break, and the show will be at seven. You go, "Okay, cool," you know. So you have. You're rough blocking for the first 30 pages, and that implies that you're going to certain things at certain times, and then you try to like mimic that for the other 30 pages. And when it doesn't work, it doesn't work, you know? I get annoyed. This is a personal pet peeve. It's fine. It's all theater. It's all pretend. But theater is incredibly powerful because of suggestion. And so I find readings where we didn't even try to put on a hat we didn't try to wear a blazer if they're a college professor, you know what I mean, whatever we can do to indicate just a little bit of storytelling. So that always bugs me. When I go to a reading and somebody is wearing their black, you know, hoodie 
and their genes to play, I don't know, the president, right? Or like, some, you know what I mean? Something that's like clearly not in that world. That's a bad example because the president is the president. But, you know, so there's a little, and I, nobody expects you to come in with a full anything, but just a little, a little suggestion, I think, does so much to activate people's imagination in a reading, which I think is what you're really trying to capture. I imagine that I'm a producer's nightmare for readings. Because I bring stuff. I'm like, cool, I brought this fabric for us to hang behind them. And like, I have this to go over this thing. And we're going to do this and that. And people are like, oh, no, it's just a reading. And I'm like, yeah, but you called it a staged reading. And I don't think that having people go from chairs behind a music stand to standing up is staging something. So if you want to call it a reading, call it a reading. But if you're calling it a staged reading, stage something. Don't stage the fight. Don't stage the kiss. That's not what this is for. Stage the relationships. Stage the silly weird part where a child goes under a table you know what i mean stage what you can that you can give people yes that's a good point will you talk a little bit more about um your thoughts on the differences between just readings versus staged readings oh sure yeah so i mean i think we love a reading right it doesn't cost as much you don't have to rehearse it as much nobody has to learn their lines uh, we can do it on Monday when everyone's off. God forbid anyone take a day off to like sleep. Um, but you know, maybe they might call me in next season. You know, I got to do it, Brittany. I got to do it. Um, having done many readings under the premise that they might call me in next season. Thank you. Here's twenty dollars or nothing. Thanks so much for your dick. Okay, but <laughs> yeah. So I think fundamentally, we say stage reading as a term, and I think it's a lie. To stage something implies that you've created action. If you're not creating action, get out of here. I think there's a lot of companies in Philadelphia, right, where my work has been for the last 10 years, that do stage readings. Revolution Shakespeare has made a whole, like, an annual event out of stage readings. They do a Mother's Day reading every year that's a female and non-binary centric cast or production <coughs> that is a staged reading where people are up and they are doing things. And, like, literally when uh, they did Troilus and Cressida that then became a full production, right? Because it was so interesting in a stage reading. And when everyone died, they shook out their binders and these pages just like floated into the air. And it was beautiful and mesmerizing and symbolic and we got it, right? And so you go, oh, great. This is brilliant. This is a staged reading. Thank you very much, Brenna Geffers, right? Meanwhile, we go somewhere else I won't say. And their stage reading is, you know, six of their rep actors that they hire for everything who clearly showed up having never read the play and didn't care at all and they stand up to say their part and then they sit back down and it's not a stage reading it's a reading and then you told people what scenes they were in because they you know are looking at the script and i think i don't know it's tricky right if you don't want to do something in your day off don't do it you don't have to do it for twenty dollars you don't have to do it for fifty dollars readings can be casual they can be inviting you should be aware of who you are portraying and what you are trying to do as a performer in that space and therefore dress appropriately, in my opinion, right? And by appropriately, I mean like just towards slight character suggestion. I do, it doesn't have to be neutral, it doesn't be whatever, it doesn't have to be the right color, but like, I don't know, if you're paying a 1950s house husband, it's gonna be very different than a construction worker or somebody who just went for a run, you know, in Philadelphia today. And so I think it's just, I don't know. That's what I think, Brittany. Yes. <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, the benefits of why you might partake in a staged reading and or producing a reading that is not staged. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think that's great. And I think, you know, it, again, coming to this question, it, anything you do, I, I hope to God, especially now in the arts, we should ask, why are we doing it? Right. And then like really fight for that. So if the reason is for the playwright, find out what the, like what are the questions the player actually asking is this scene achievable versus is this scene like 
interesting? You know, or is this scene clip enough? Or are the words clear enough? Do people understand the conflict of this scene? And I think that, uh, you know, inherently action is or is not required for that for certain scenes, right? And so I think that uh, sometimes a reading is useful because it shows you things that you will never, or a staged reading, right? To, to get people up on their feet is useful because you will see things you'll ne- you wouldn't see otherwise, whether it's a physical relationship, whether it's a, a, a like a moment of interaction or a moment of like uh, magic or, you know, something else that's like special in that way. Um, and so in that regard, I think that's kind of like for directors, right? And for artistic directors, it's cool if we did this, these are the proposals that like this team might make in that world, right? Um, but that's one ask. I think if it's literally about a, a playwright hearing the words, why spend any time staging it? Who cares, right? If you're staging it for an audience, why are you inviting an audience to this process is also a question I ask. I totally get it, right? It makes sense. It's a money option for companies, right? And audience feedback can be very useful. I think in my experience, in many talkback scenarios, theater audiences are very trained to be polite and supportive, and that's beautiful and so wonderful. But I don't know that all audiences are ready to ask tough questions of artists. And I also don't know that all artists are ready to hear tough responses from audiences. And I think that that is a very, very tricky thing that a lot of people, um, and myself included at times, you know, I will say anything that I speak about the form or about artists in my industry, in my community, I am guilty of most of, not all of them. So I, I just put that out there. Right. So if you really want feedback about your play, uh, you know, I think you have to know what that might look like in a public space and how you are ready to receive that. Right. So it's better for you if you're a person that does not want actual direct feedback. That's great. Ask people to write it down. There are ways to do that. You can set a follow up survey. You can do lots of things. If the reality is you don't want to hear what people think, you want to know if they're going to buy tickets. That's not for the playwright at all. That's for the producers. And that's also different. Right. In which case, again, do your survey. Don't make the artist talk to the people. It's incredibly insulting for you to say, ultimately, I'm hiring five people to come in and read something out loud today to decide if my audience will buy tickets to it. It is not the artist's job to be open to your audience's feedback about them or the play at that time. Not at all. That is for you. Um, And I think that we, in an effort to entice audiences, try to sometimes create like an openness towards artists. And I think that most artists, if you have something real to say to them, will happily talk to you because they're in, they are very actively engaged in conversations about the work and that's why they do what they're doing. Um, and that creating these little like pandering moments is like very unuseful and it's why we end up with so much, I don't know, generic, uh, lukewarm material. I, I think that no, where whatever scale you're at, whatever, your buy-in is to a project. You have to know why you're doing a reading. Don't just do a reading because you have a Monday that's free. Yeah, and it just led me to the world of, I guess, we we don't need to necessarily answer this, but like, why are we producing readings of things that aren't new works? Though I guess you like kind of went that direction in terms of like, if, if these producers are for a certain house or for a certain theater and they're trying to test like financially, if it's a good investment for them. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know either, Brittany. (laughs) And I've done them. I've done readings of Shakespeare plays. I've done readings of like other like classics, you know, for classics companies that are like considering work. I think, oh God. All right, well now we're about to get political. When's this coming out? beginning labor day weekend uh okay and great. i like so it'll be plenty of time yeah 
<laughs> so I think something that I notice in my community that I like question and find uh, tricky in this world of like, why do a reading if it's not a new play? Um, is that sometimes people do a reading to make a statement towards a point of view and uh, and maybe that's inclusion, for example, right? So mm-hmm. I'm going to keep doing my regular season the way I've always done it, but we're also doing this reading directed by a person who is black and that person's going to hire mostly black actors because the show calls for that. But we're not programming it. We're not going to program it in five years. We're going to put in this reading series under the guys that were considering it, but there's no way we're going to do it. We're going to say not enough black people came. We're going to say the artists weren't engaged. We're going to say whatever we need to say to tell ourselves that it's not the right choice. Um, So I think something that I really struggle with right now is seeing that and like that guise of the reading as as a faux inclusion. Yeah. Um, However, I also see for a producing white company, right? The, the the usefulness of that for the optics, right? So I get what you're doing, but I also see through it, and I think it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I guess that's, like, that's how people rationalize some some of the choices for non-new plays. Um, and I think sometimes it, there there is real reason to it, right? If you're a company that is a classics company and that has gotten kind of pigeonholed into doing Shakespeare for 10 years, great. Do a couple readings to figure out what else is, like, interesting. I don't know that having an audience for a classic reading is going to give you that much perspective about how, like what they would get out of a show or if they'll enjoy a show because so much of classics work is about really understanding it. And so even as someone that works and has worked professionally uh, in classical work, I don't think that I come into the reading, unless it's a Shakespeare play, because we all kind of know the gist of most of them, things with a lot of heightened speech and two and a half hours to get through, you know what I mean? Or like four mm-hmm. hours of rehearsal to get through a three hour play when staged, right? Is absurd. And so you get to a point that you're kind of like mush mouthing through half of it and speeding through half of it. And just like, but I know the end is a joke, you know? And then I get my little laugh, right? And I go, great, I did it, right? Um, so I don't know. I don't know why people are doing readings of old plays. I really am not sure about the usefulness of them. I think if you've got like a big statement, great. But so often that's not the case. But yeah, do more new plays and just do them, right? Like stop doing readings as though we're going to, we, we might do it in three years. Put up the play. Just put up the play. <laughs> like who cares? <laughs> I just think she gets so dumb. You know what I mean? Like the amount yeah. of people that get in like locked down in a play, per, like uh, development process for five years. I'm like this play isn't relevant anymore. You know, the whole thing is we're supposed to be writing for now and especially now, like, please to God, when all of this changes, whenever we hit our next wave of this, a right? A 10-year incubation period right, on, like, a COVID get, play. Right, exactly, <laughs> right? Like, what a waste. Like, let's see it all immediately. And if it's not all brilliant, who cares? Most of the stuff we put up after three years isn't brilliant anyway. <laughs> and that's not the point. It doesn't all have to be brilliant, you know? Yeah. And I mean, there, there is... I mean, also, like, yes, please, please just produce it. But there's, like... Uh, allow staged readings to be your gateway if you can and see yeah. if you can get your feet wet and then like put it up within the year after figuring out what works sure. and what didn't. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And like this, I mean, we were, our process, we ultimately gave ourselves a deadline, right? So yeah. like we had decided we were doing it. That French festival, the show was going up. So we said, all right, that's why I got six months to write the songs now. Because um, you can, <laughs> I don't know, you can do anything at any budget, right? And then. I, I guess I understand it. It's a marketplace. It's a field. It's a business. Um, and I ultimately don't engage with a lot of commercial aspects of theater. And I have to acknowledge that for anything and everything I say about the business and my experience in it. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. You, you, it, it becomes this weird... Uh, 
balance, for lack of a better word. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like, and I, I, you've done a ton of producing readings and stage readings with Honey. You've been doing a lot of, at least as far as I know, like, su- administrative, supportive producing roles in this going viral festival. What have, like, the shortest and longest readings related producing experiences looked like for you that was a mouthful oh okay yeah that's interesting yeah and it's funny you know like i said earlier i was like oh i feel like there's stuff i like don't remember i guarantee you i've done more right um so yeah let's see so i have done processes that are as short as like we got the script that morning and we had three hours and then we put it up that day i've done i've done cold reading performances where we essentially didn't read the play before we like kind of talked about like parts of it you know um, and then like honey was definitely like the longest uh and most elaborate series of readings i've worked on um i've done a good bit of like <clears throat> reading <clears throat> and new play development work with the philadelphia young playwrights um and those processes have been of like various lengths and sizes but my like producing work in that has also varied uh depending on like kind of the year <laughs> this is like a it's not a strange question. It's just one we I feel like we don't often talk about as much. But for our younger artists who may be interested in producing, how has the budget varied when you've been producing readings? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, massively, right? So sometimes your budget is zero dollars. Your budget, you got a free space and you got six people that want to work on something. And that's great. And that's a beautiful time. And you can put on a beautiful reading with zero dollars. You really can. And it's also important to note, especially for a reading, your space is irrelevant. Using a theater for a reading is dumb in some ways, right? Is there a space that's like more reminiscent of what your set might feel like or like the themes of the play or like the busyness and the hustle and bustle of the play, right? Why are we putting a reading, which is inherently not about producing a play in a space reserved for producing plays, right? Um, If you have a free like theater, fine, use the theater, right? it's set up for it but i think that oftentimes space feels like the biggest hurdle to a reading and you can literally do a reading anywhere including your living room and if it's for you and the playwright to figure it out then that's all you have to do and you don't have to have an audience but you can if that's like useful to you and you feel like it'll entice actors sure um and then i don't know i guess like Thinking mathematically, the highest budget reading I've ever been on has probably been like about a thousand dollars. Meaning that like I don't know, ten actors each got fifty bucks. You know, the director got a hundred or fifty bucks. Maybe a stage manager got some money, and you like paid potentially like the box office staff for the day, or like bought snacks or like pizza. You know, um, so that's like often the thing. I think that uh, people will absolutely work for food. And while I don't think you should try to create your entire career on like an, an ecosystem of people working for food. Um, if you're asking people for two hours and it's a play they're excited about, and if you realistically think they might be a good collaborator, I think that's like a real thing too with an ask, um, is be candid with people about what you think the relationship you will have with the project is. Um, I did a reading recently of a script that me and some people are maybe considering for the future because who the hell knows what's happening. Um, and we made a very clear statement at the beginning that like the production was not planned. If the production happens, we have not offered you a role. We brought you in here because we thought you would have fun reading this with us today. And we like working with you generally. Um, and I think it's just important to be upfront with people so that, you know, let's say everything, the vaccines tomorrow and plays start in the fall. Right. And we go, great, we're doing it. We're going to do this play, you know, and, and, you know, 
person that played part four goes, oh, what about my part? And I go, oh, no, I'm so sorry. You know, we I just want to put it in a firm terms of we're not guaranteeing you anything. And we also don't expect anything. We don't expect you to hold availability for this project. We don't expect you, you know what I mean, to be out there telling people this show's happening. Everyone should come support it later. Um, I think it all gets tricky when you send an email that says something like, dear Seamus, it's been such a pleasure to see your auditions for the last six years. I know we still haven't found a spot, but we're doing this reading next Monday. I know it's at the last minute. Someone quit. They don't say it, but someone quit. Uh, and I would just, I really think you would kill this part. It's unpaid. Uh, but let us know if you'd like to join us. You know, and you go, okay. Uh, okay. And then you do it, right? I did it twice. Same company. Literally, I know exactly what story I'm telling. I did two readings for them for free. <laughs> and then I said, no more. <laughs> I sent an email being like, can I direct for you? And they said, oh yeah, we're restructuring. I said, okay, bye. And we haven't talked since. And that's fine, right? But I don't know. I think it's important to have your boundaries. It's important to know like what you are and aren't interested in. You don't have to... I don't know. Most readings don't have a lot of budget. I don't think budget should be the hurdle for a reading, personally. Setting boundaries, especially as a producer, clear communication, being so upfront, like you mentioned, feels so important. Are there any other sort of tips and tricks or unexpected producer brain things you've had to stumble through that you would offer advice through now on the other side? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think like the boundaries is a real thing, right? I think that you want to have a very clear and set schedule and you want to articulate that schedule, even if it's very informal, right? Like you and four friends reading a play at your house, make it as, as professional as it can be in the sense that you say, great. So, I f- hey, everybody, welcome. Let's introduce ourselves in case anyone doesn't know each other, right? Set it up like a real rehearsal and then say, so we're going to read the play. Then we're going to take a 10, right? And then we're going to come back and talk about it, right? It's not super specific as far as like, we'll be done at 1.30 with the play reading, uh, but it gives people a sense of like the flow of the day. So they aren't getting, you know, deeper and deeper into the script going, are we ever going to take a break? What's happening here? Um, you know, I think that's super important. Like articulating the goals of it, how you want actors to interact with the playwright is super important. Um, some playwrights are very excited to work with actors and others find actors like intimidating and scary and don't or like or find just like confrontation or like, you know, talking about the work that was so one on one and like, you know, alone making and then sharing it with so many people very quickly and getting audience feedback plus actor feedback plus talking to the director and the potential producers, you know, um, is a lot, a lot. So I think like identifying what you're doing the reading for and then like really protecting that or those artists is really important. Even if, like, the person playing the lead is, like, kind of, like, the lead of your company, you know what I mean? Like, they're always that person, you know? Maybe you don't give them carte blanche to give feedback to this person that's brand new to your space because they have more power, you know? So, like, being aware of that, I think, is important, the power dynamics. Um, And then I think, like, touch and consent is so important, but I feel like that conversation is going to change so much in the new world, right? As far as, like, what does it mean to be near someone? But in the same way, you have to have, like... I don't see much reason for any physical contact in a reading. I don't think you need it in your semi-stage reading. I think it's going to inherently be unsafe because someone's holding a binder. And so I think that, you know, again, to shout out to this reading that I just found the images of this reading that Brenna did of Troy's and Cressida so impactful, right? It was just as useful to see someone like stand over someone and shake out a binder as it would have been to have them put their hands anywhere near that person's throat to choke them. Um, And so I think it speaks to artistry, right? If you can find something that's not a very bad imitation of non-fight choreography in like two seconds, you know? Uh, 
I also think that we underheard stage directions in stage readings, and I think that's something to look at. Oftentimes, your stage directions person is a company member or an intern or that actor you're trying to give a shot to or your friend, right? And that person should not come after everyone else just to like step in. I, I see that happen all the time. I'm like, this is a mistake. They are a member of the cast. Um, you should treat them and refer to them as a member of the cast. They are doing the same work. They are standing in front of a group of people and saying words that are written in front of them. And you should have a very clear sense of what you think their affect and role is, right? I think that uh, everyone's point of view is different on this and you can both can be effective and there's probably even more options, right? But the two, like the ways I, I see it breaking down is your stage directions are like a neutral place or your stage directions are supporting rhythm and theme. And so when I read stage directions, I default to rhythm and theme. And so in some settings, that's very useful, right? When you were doing, for example, uh, you know, Philadelphia Young Playwrights, we've done a bit of work there where we present student scripts in progress uh, or finished scripts. And that is uh, like as far as the production is going to go with them, right? And so things you can do to enhance rhythm and sensation of the play through stage directions in, in like a faux narrator space are very useful. You know, in your contemporary, you know, many silences, dark brooding play that like a little bit of editorializing will in fact very much get in the way and so you want to like you know cut it down to bare essentials right if your students were interested in producing and starting with readings or staged readings what would be things that you would recommend for them to focus on like some non-negotiables from your experience except that it's all gonna fall apart uh, it's like number one, just accept it right away because that makes it much easier. We opened the first night of my musical, it was a preview technically, which was my way of getting um, basically the producers who were getting most of the ticket fee or like, you know what I mean? Like our ticket structure was such that like the more ticket sales didn't necessarily like benefit, benefit me. Anyway, um, so for the preview, uh, I was allowed to invite whoever I wanted. That was my like, shame you can have comps then, you know, that, that's ultimately what it was. They didn't want me like giving out comps all, uh, the whole run, which I get. Comp is slang for a complimentary ticket. This may be self-explanatory, but I remember starting out in the industry and not being sure what this meant. Offering comps is one part of inviting press to see your show if you're interested in written publicity. It is also a great way to extend an invitation to other folks in the industry who you might want to see your show, like literary managers, artistic directors, casting directors, or potential collaborators. And uh, and our lights didn't work. We had a miscommunication and ultimately a dimmer didn't go on and so we didn't have lights on. And so it was like the most mortifying experience of my career and I wanted to die. And I had like three panic anxiety attacks in the cab on the way to the show nights after that where I like couldn't see straight or like falling over um and then I had to go run the show because we didn't have a stage manager so <laughs> so except that everything will go wrong because it will make it so much easier and make you so much happier when things go right because uh, then she's like oh great wait oh that's all oh we ran out of money at the box office okay cool here's the thing let them in they'll either settle with you and or they won't and like get over it you know what I mean it's eight dollars like <laughs> Who cares? You want people to come see it, right? People are going to remember that you let them into your show and actually buy a ticket, maybe, if you, instead of being a jerk at the reading because you, like, ran out of change. And you're like, well, can you just give us that 20? You know, like, don't do that. Um, right? And, like, figure out what you're offering to people, right? If the offer is snacks, great. Have good snacks. Like, that's something you can do. Don't make it some, like, crappy Entenmann's cookies and a three-hour reading because those are not... Nobody wants either of those. So if you put them together, it doesn't, like, soften the blow. Um, <laughs> and like, I think that's real. You know what I mean? Like if you tell me if you're going to have a reading and the appeal is 
it's gonna have like a lot, we're gonna have beer, right? Free beer at the reading. And that's a fine thing to do, right? Like if that's the way you're gonna get people in to get development and like eyes on your script, that's fine. Um, but but then it can't be, I don't know, 130 rack of Natty Ice, right? If, this, if your offer is beer, you have to have enough beer for people and you have to have like a beer people will want to drink, right? Because otherwise, what people will get out of this experience is they lied to me or they like oversold something and then I had to sit for three hours drinking warm shitty beer. And then they're never gonna buy a ticket to your play or, you know, follow the development or even pay attention during it because it's gonna be mad the whole time. <laughs> uh, don't worry about names for a reading, it's irrelevant. Especially if we're like, uh, you know, young people, low budget things. And then like, just do it, just do it. No one's ever, maybe. And for, you know, for the five, you know, not even maybe, like for the five people this is true for, great, good for you. But for most of us, no one is ever gonna come up to you and say, you're an artist now. You're a playwright now, you're a director now. You have to say it. And until you can say it and believe it, other people will not believe it. And so the way you do that is by doing the work. And there came a time for me personally, where I went from, from working and identifying as an actor to a director and the ability to articulate that and the assuredness with which I can now articulate that is different um, and it's palpable and people know it. Be proud of what you're doing and say it firmly and do it and that way you can be proud that you have done it. It just gets rid of that whole imposter syndrome that I think we all have because at the end of the day, most of us, right, either you go to, you like pursue collegiate training or not. So either you're 18 or 22, thrust into an industry that doesn't care about you, unless they suddenly have a very specific call that fits something that they see in you and you alone in a room, you know? Uh, so you just have to go show them the artist you are and let them be interested in that. When you talk to folks about producing, how do you describe what it is that you do oh i would say i'm not a producer is the first thing i would say right so in that same imposter yeah. syndrome like i would yeah. never claim to be a producer have i produced yes will i continue to absolutely do i have equipment in my house to produce yes i mean i think like uh, smaller smaller and producing and like the feet on the ground work that we kind of do lives very well within that imposter syndrome that you're talking about. You just think mostly, like you were saying before, like I'm directing this and then also, of course, I'm going to help take care of these other things. And or if these other things fall apart, of course, I'll also take care of them. We're just going to make this right. show and I guess be like a thing. I also forget about often when I say like how much I later like gauge whether or not I produce on things. I almost exclusively do all of my own photography because I don't have money to pay anyone. Mm. Um, and so like, mm -hmm. but like that's, and like that and creating marketing materials is like very much a producer job. Um, and so like being my own one person or like me and somebody else marketing team is like a big part of producing I don't think about, but that's also like a skill set that's essential to producing. Um, whether you're the one having to create copy or and materials or just speak about it and to someone about it. I think that's like a very essential part of producing that we often, uh, I don't know, think because the marketing that we so often receive is very high end, I think we like view it as yeah. this like other thing that someone else magically does, you know? Um, and there's certainly people that can. Uh, um, <laughs> so like, I don't know, I'm going viral festival, right? When we first started, uh, it was me and two other people that are not really like visual designers, marketing people, but I have a bit of experience. And with Photoshop, I'm like pretty decent. My Photoshop is dead. I updated my computer and so it doesn't work. So I had to download this other terrible program I like can't use. And I made some terrible graphics, but they were fine. 
And that's another important lesson. Sometimes things being fine is just fine. If it has the information on it, it doesn't matter. People are still seeing the information. And then somebody stepped in recently who was like really good at that. And I was like, oh, thank God. So great to have someone that really has this skill set and like has this program that works, right? Because I was like trying to like Frankenstein it. Um, but that was fine, right? And we didn't stress about it. We didn't like seek out this thing. But someone that was working with us as an actor was like, hey, I also do this. And like, no shade. I'm happy to help you, right? It wasn't, hey, your work is terrible. But it's like, I'm happy to do this. And we said, great, please to God, take it away. I'm like, maybe that's a lesson too. Let people take things. You don't have to do everything. It's in fact impossible and it's unhelpful. And I've made myself sick and I'm sure I've ruined experiences for other people by trying to do too many things. Um, and sometimes sometimes you have to do things that, that are not part of your scope and are not like something that your job or you as an individual should be doing. And it's great to step in in those moments. But I think uh, one of the biggest differences I see between... Artists of different level of experience is like martyrdom and thinking that it's always the best thing to just say, no, I can just do it anyway. And the reality is it's not because it comes up later and the issues end up becoming worse. And uh, very few people are bothered by like, especially now because politically it's much harder to be bothered by boundaries. Like now is a great time to set boundaries for people. Um, Cause I mean, I don't know if you're, if you are at a place of self-assured enough that you can like, just be like, nope, not accepting that response because it's a problem in X, Y, Z way. You've got that right. Um, but that's hard too. I don't know. Everything, everything I say comes from a, a, a white cis, you know, privileged face. So I feel abilities to, to do that. Um, but not everyone does. Any last thoughts or advice you would like to offer just about producing or about producing readings in general? Yeah, so do it, right? Absolutely do it. Yeah, I, I, I think I, like I said it, it uh, just a second ago, but like fine is, is good enough. A reading is a reading, right? It's not a full production. You give a little suggestion, you move on because it's for people's mental space, right? It's not... No one comes to a reading to watch spectacle. They don't expect it. It shouldn't do it. But you can give them a little bit. So they go, oh, my imagination, right? That's why we come to theaters, that tickle, right? And so a stage reading kind of like, it's just asking for like any moments of that you got, right? Can you just give them a little bit of that little like, the, the, those, the goosies, right? The little goosebump feeling that we get when the note really hits or like when the cue really hits, right? Stage managers describe it the best way. They're like calling high. And we all experience as audience members. We just don't know it because the work's being done so well. But it's that moment where the set piece lands as they're hitting the note and they're moving the thing and this is here and it reminds you of your grandma and suddenly you're like somewhere else and you're like crying a little bit and then it's like gone and you're like, wait, what was that, right? That's that magic theater moment, right? Um, and so I think readings are... are literally just endless opportunities for that to just like throw out something does this do it for you no okay how about this right so just keep throwing things out there thank you so much for talking with me and for talking with me like two and oh, a half so times no, what question a delight. Mark. i only wish we had the other version so i could hear how different our perspectives are on covid literally you know what i mean so in a month interesting yeah I guess, oh, can I share this? I don't know. It's going to be irrelevant yeah. by the time this happens, or maybe it won't, right? In which case, great. I called it out on this platform. Oh. I received an audition notice today for a show. The auditions are in June, and the show is in September. And I was like, how dare you? Your show isn't happening. This is appalling. 
Um, and I just was so saddened by it because I was like, oh, this is actually what will kill our industry, not the break. The break will not kill our industry. Negligent producing will kill our industry and people creating spaces where people are either, do you want this? Do you want your dreams? You want to do this? You haven't been able to do it for eight months. You should be thankful. You should be thankful for $200 and to be in this terrible workspace with an audience that hasn't been temperature checked, you know? Um, and that will yeah. kill us all. Uh, both yeah. as an industry and like probably a humanity. Um, <laughs> so yeah. when this, you know, once this is out in the world, I Ugh. hope it didn't. I hope that production was canceled. And so that's, I think that's kind of the weirdest thing is that despite everything, there's people pretending we're anywhere near solutions that would allow our work to happen. And what I think is so ugly about it is that you're, you're peddling dreams to artists at this point. You are telling them, and unless you are willing to fulfill those contracts, how dare you audition people? What a waste of everyone's time and health and energy. Like, my God. Um, <laughs> and don't get me wrong, all of my identity to a, a fault is wrapped up in theater. Uh, but I, I, I worry, and I hope, I guess I worry that we are not going to let the things of the industry that should die in this die, and instead we're going to lose things that were vital. Um, and I guess my hope is that for the young people listening, you'll fix it. <laughs> fix it! <laughs> and I'm trying. I'm out here. Come find me when you're out. <laughs> School. I'll hire you. Oh, man. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, of course. It was fun. Sorry I like, had two more, like, bah, and also this. <laughs> no. Um... You're super cool, and yeah, I really nice. appreciate you. <laughs> All right, I have to go talk to my boyfriend now. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. But text me whenever. Bye. That was Seamus McCarty. I am Brittany Brewer. This is No Small Parts. Thank you for listening. For more No Small Parts, visit our website at www.nosmallpartspodcast.com. <laughs>